songs that are catchy, that you would marinate in the words of those songs, that we have a God who is compassionate, who's loving, who makes a way when we think there's no way. We have a God who, who gives grace abundantly, more grace than our sin, that you cannot out the power of the cross, that we have a God who is eager to show us his grace, who is eager to show us his mercy, and he has an infinite amount available to you and I, and that we have a God who gives us hope when we think there's none. We have a God who extends life where there's death, hope where there's none, breath where there's none, and maybe you feel more like that than life this morning. Maybe you feel more like death than life this morning. Maybe you feel more broken than mended this morning. And maybe you need to hear that the good news of the gospel is that what's extended to you and I this morning is hope and restoration and reconciliation and redemption, that there's no sin that you are currently experiencing that Christ has not paid for, for you and for I, and it's available for you and I this morning. Amen? And now I know as I... Maybe you know me, maybe you don't, but I'm not one to shy away from hard conversations. <laughs> I'm not one to, to shy away from pressing into the awkward. And, and church, I know you know this. I know that around us right now is a brokenness that exists in our world. And it's actually, don't even look around us right now. Look in us. That what's wrong with the world today is not only found out there, but it's mainly found in here. What's wrong in the world today is me, not them. And that when you look around and you see the chasms that exist, you see the brokenness that exists, you see the, the sickness and what this pandemic is doing to our, not just our nation, not just our church, not just our community, but our world that it, it must, as gospel people, it must stir up in us a compassion for the broken, a compassion for the sick, that we have people in our family right now who are hurting, who are sick. We have people in our flock right now who are grieving, not just the loss of, of connection with people, because COVID-19 has changed how we interact with people, has it not? But also grieving the loss of loved ones. I look around and I, I look in the, and there's grief and there's loss and there's pain on top of what is already going on. And then I look around and, and then we have disagreements about whether or not we should wear masks or not wear masks. And then we judge those who don't and judge those who do. And then I look around and on people on the left side of the aisle and the right side of the aisle politically can't even come to terms of agreement. What we are looking for here is not uniformity. What we are looking for here is unity, and only Christ can give us that. Only He can give us that longing, satisfy that deepest longing that we are experiencing, that there is a third and better way, and His name is Jesus Christ, and that there are churches this morning that aren't meeting like we are because of sickness, because of death, because of A, B, C, and D. And so we're going to stop again, and we're going to intentionally just pray for those who are sick, for those who are anxious, for those who are hurting, for those who are scared, for those who are grieving, and for local churches. So if you would, just bow with me in prayer. Father, we just come to you as the one who has infinite mercies to give us, who is eager to show us compassion, who is a good father. Would you hear our cry this morning? We're asking you to move in our midst, and not just 
this body here, but in all of the local bodies in Plymouth and Marshall County and, and extended beyond, would your gospel be proclaimed with such clarity, such precision, and such exaltation that people walk away looking to you, Jesus, as their only hope because you are our only hope? Would you be with Plymouth Wesleyan Church and Crossroads and Trinity and, and uh, Plymouth Missionary and Plymouth Baptist and, and all of the other ones that I can't think of right now? Would you move in their midst this morning, whether it's via a camera or via face-to-face, -face, would you move in such a way that, Christ, your name is proclaimed and your name is made famous above every other name? Would you be with those who are sick? Would you be with those who aren't here because there's some anxiety and maybe some fear? Would you comfort them? Would you bring them peace where there's none, hope where there's none? Would you help them to feel connected and not alone by your power and by your presence? Would you be with those who are sick even right now, who are in the world of COVID where a runny nose sends you into a thread of anxiety? Would you comfort those, heal those, mend those who feel broken? In Christ, may you, in the preaching of your word this morning, be exalted and worshiped above everything else. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's open uh, to Matthew 13. So we finished up the Beatitudes last week. And uh, we are, uh, we're not so... Uh, we're not so stuck in our ways that we don't change things because the Spirit moves and says change things. And although I'm a, I'm a planner, I like to prepare a sermon series. I, look to, I like to look six months out and, and see kind of where we're going and what, we, what I feel and what the elders and I feel need to hear and where we need to go. And, and we just felt overwhelmed that we need to just stay in the Sermon on the Mount and continue to unpack the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to do that. We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you would, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 13. <clears throat> I'm going to read you God's word, and then we'll get to work on unpacking it. Chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light up a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and get it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And what we've, what we've been doing is we've been walking through the past maybe eight weeks and extended, walking through the Beatitudes, breaking down each one, knowing that they are a whole, that they're not a buffet of, of ones you like and ones you don't like until you get to pick the ones you like and the ones that you don't like just get to stay on the shelf or in the container. No, they're, they are a whole. Jesus comes and says, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. This is what it looks like. My disciples, my followers will look like this as a whole. And we titled this series The Upside Down Kingdom because it feels upside down to the rest of the watching world. And remember who Jesus is preaching to. He's preaching to a multitude of people here. It's for followers of Jesus. It's for those who are following Jesus as a disciple of Jesus, yes, but he also expects those who aren't following him to listen in. He, he expects those who, who aren't 
following him, to be hear the invitation of what it means to follow him. And it's no different than this morning, is it? That, yes, there are followers of Jesus here, but our expectation is always that there are those who are not yet quite called themselves a follower of Jesus. Those who haven't taken that leap over the ditch of faith to get to put their hope in Christ. And so we expect you this morning to hear the invitation of the gospel that's extended to you this morning. But what I want to do before we even enter into uh, breaking down expositionally these verses, uh, that's a fancy word for just verse by verse, uh, but I, I want to present to you a tension that we must hold or a paradox that we must hold as we continue uh, in this Sermon on the Mount. One, on one hand, hear me, disciples of Jesus are no different than anyone else. No different. But yet, the tension is that on the other hand, we are completely different. (laughs) And so, uh, hear me out here. Look at Acts 4.13 briefly with me. On one hand, disciples of Jesus are no different than anyone else. Yet, on another hand, we are wholly different than anyone else. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Look at how the people discussed and talked about Peter and John. When they saw, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, They were astonished, and they took note, look at what they took note of, that these men had been with Jesus. These men were ordinary, but yet when they've been with Jesus, they come out and they're astonished because Jesus does through ordinary men and women extraordinary things. It's just how he operates, normal, uneducated men And the people were astonished. And why were they astonished? Because they could tell that they've been with Jesus. That gives me great hope because I'm average. (laughs) And if I were to be honest with you, I'm below average. And it gives me great hope that Jesus takes average people and does beyond average and above average things, doesn't he? And it's not to our credit, it's to his credit. It's just how he works. See, what I want to say is that Jesus uses and, and that disciples of Jesus are no different than anyone else. We know this because of the nature of the gospel, don't we? The gospel tells us that it is God's grace in Jesus that saves you, not your awesomeness. If it was up to my awesomeness, I am, <laughs> I'm not going to do so well, to put it nicely. It's that God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has extended to you and I salvation by faith in the finished work of Jesus, that God saves undeserving sinners by grace through faith. Amen? It's what he does. It's how he operates. It's not that you merited that, this salvation. It's not that you worked for this salvation. It's not that you cleaned yourself up and earned God's grace. The message of the gospel is that you cannot clean yourself up. We cannot earn God's favor, that he must do this for us, and in Christ he has. That's why it's such good news. So in, in this, this sense then, disciples of Jesus are no different than anyone else. So when we share the gospel with other people, we do it from a place of common ground, a place of shared brokenness, a place of shared undeservedness. So we don't share the gospel as, hey, you sinners over there, hey, you pagans over there, (laughs) you should come and be more enlightened like us Christians. We don't share it like that. 
And people who share the gospel in that way are doing a disservice to the actual good news of the gospel. See, what we do is rather we share the gospel as those, back to Matthew 5, are as those who are poor in spirit. It's what we've been walking through. As those who are, as we have looked at over and over again in the Beatitudes at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, as poor, needy beggars telling other poor, needy beggars where we found food and water. Like, hey, are you homeless and need shelter? Come find where I found food and a home. Come find where I found water for my thirst. Come find, come, come look at where I found food for my hunger. Because this place, the church, his people should be more like a hospital for the broken and needy than a museum of the saints. You know what I mean by that? The, this place, the, the church, should be more like a hospital for the broken, needy, and those who need surgery rather than a museum of the saints like, look how awesome we are. Because we make better pointers than the point. We come in, anyone who comes in here, we hope that you hear, no, we're not the point, he is. Don't look at us, look at him. So on one hand, a disciple of Jesus is no different than anyone else just by the nature of the gospel. Yet, on the other hand, we are wholly distinct. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, further on in the New Testament. 1 Peter Chapter 2 defines us, gives us our identity as disciples of Jesus. Verse 9. So on one hand, we are no different, but yet on the other hand, we are wholly distinct. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may, this is our purpose, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Highlight, underline, his wonderful light. Because it's not your wonderful light, it's his wonderful light. And then we, we can go elsewhere to, if you're a note taker, Philippians 3.20 talks about our citizenship is in heaven. In Hebrews 13, 14, where we seek not this city, not to build our kingdom in this city, but we seek the kingdom that is to come because we are made for another world. C.S. Lewis has this amazing, listen, if I ever struggle with coming up with something, a uh, quote, I just go to C.S. Lewis, just FYI. And, and he has this quote that says, if you find in yourself this, in this world a desire or, or a longing that can never be satisfied, it's probably because you were created for another world. <laughs> And so what we hold this tension is that we are normal, we are average, we are ordinary, that we are no different than anyone else, yet on the other hand, we are wholly distinct and unique from everyone else, not by our own merit, but by God's own grace in his Son. See, you're not only different in essence, you are living in two absolutely different worlds. You are in this world, but you're not of it. You are among those people, yes, but you are citizens of another kingdom. This is the vital thing that is emphasized everywhere in God's word. And so you don't become a Christian then by knowing the right facts or behaving a certain way. That's not what saves you. You become a Christian by this mysterious, I mean, unifying power of God in his son that you are united with Christ by faith 
And so what this means is that you are united with God by faith in a complete, holy, complete, and finished work by Jesus on the cross. Not by your work, but by his work. You take no credit. You give him all of it. He took us out of darkness and brought us into light. He took us out of death and brought us into life. And so it is God with us, and then it is us with God. It's Emmanuel that leads to our unifying power of Jesus. So it's God with us and us with God. It's Christ in us language. And so because of this, we are, yes, no different than anyone else, but yet the tension we hold is wholly distinct and unique from everyone else. Because we are distinctly different from the rest of the world, not because of our own selves, but because of Christ in you. He is what makes us distinct. You don't make you distinct. He does. 1 Peter 2.9, what's the whole point? That you may declare his excellencies. You may declare his glory, not yours. And now too often what the church does is declare its own glory versus Christ's glory. Too often, by, by in, in no, uh, no, no credit of their own, no malpractice on their own, what the default mode is, is, hey, come look at us instead of, hey, come look at Jesus. And we're committed to not letting that happen here. See, Jesus tells us in John 8, verse 12, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a set-apartness of God's people. And why we need to understand that back in Matthew 5, verse 13, is because Jesus is going to say something, and it's going to be easy. He's going to make a distinction, and it would be easy to gain some pride based on what Jesus says. But what I want us to hear and what I feel Jesus wants us to hear in Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16 and, and beyond even, is that it's not that Jesus is saying these people are better than the world, but rather you hear him saying, I am different than the entire world, and in light of that, my people are different than the entire world. Jesus starts in Matthew 5, verse 13, with two statement of facts. Look at these. You are the salt of the earth, and, verse 14, you are the light of the the world. It's a statement of the nature of things. This is so cool. He didn't say you should be salt. He didn't say you should be light. He said you are. It's who you are as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as one who has put his or her hope wholly in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You are salt, you are light. You don't earn this saltiness. You don't earn the light. You receive it. You must see this before anything else as we begin to unpack some of the nuances in the Sermon on the Mount, that this is an identity language. It's an identity statement. It's who you are. You didn't earn it. You received it. Jesus just told us that in the Beatitudes. <laughs> this is, the, I, I pray that as you dive deeper into this, this is mind-blowing. Jesus doesn't open up after saying, therefore, in light of the Beatitudes, live like this. He says, therefore, in light of the Beatitudes, remember who you are. Remember who you are, that this is your identity. We must see this because this is a theme that's traced out throughout all of God's scripture. Identity before 
obedience. Identity before behavior. Identity before performance. Identity drives what you do, not what you do drives who you are. If you flip those, you'll be earning your salvation rather than receiving it. And you can't earn it. It's only to be received. We do what we do because of who we are. God's work in Jesus Christ grants us a whole new identity, and this new identity leads to a whole new way of living. Don't flip those. Don't confuse those. But here's what the world tells us, and here's our problem. We have what Paul Tripp calls identity amnesia. We forget who we are every day, every minute of every day. We forget who we are. Are. When we are in Christ, you, and you, if you build your identity on anything else or anyone else but Jesus, it can crumble. But this is something that cannot be taken away from you because you received it as a gift, not earned it as merit. It's the freedom of when you find your identity in Christ, not based on what you do or what you say or what other people say about you or what other people do to you. When you find your identity in Christ and him alone, it can never be taken away from you. High school kids, teenagers, listen to me. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Who cares what anybody else says about you? Who cares about what, what other people gossip about you? Who cares how other people act around you? You are a son, you are a daughter of Jesus Christ, and that cannot be taken away from you. And you live there. You don't live by the world's narratives. You live by his story that he's writing on your life. And adults, listen up too. See, if we miss this, we'll think that Jesus is saying, act like salt, act like light. No, he's saying, you are salt, you are light. <laughs> it's easy for us to drift then into the New Testament language of, of this concept of identity. Ephesians and Colossians are filled with identity language. In him, in him, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, for Christ, from Christ. But what I want us to do is that it's actually seen from the very beginning. Let's let, just go back to, you don't have to, but in your mind, into Genesis 1. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve were in the garden. How were Adam and Eve created? By God, which means they are God's. Who created them? God did. They're His. God gave them everything in the garden to enjoy. Did they merit it? No. God gave it to them as a free gift. They were created in God's image to reflect the nature and character of who God is and how they lived, loved, worked, and played. This is so cool. And that theme is played out all throughout Scripture. He says to Adam and Eve, I formed you, I made you, I gave you breath, and it is by me that you will have your breath. And now in light of this, of who I am and what I've done, do this, don't do that. It would be good for you. <laughs> I'll always provide for you. You'll never go without. And what did they do? They listened to a different voice. They listened to a, a different word from the serpent, from the devil, saying, no, he really didn't mean that. He's holding back from you. And it's what we do over and over and over again. We try and fashion an identity for ourselves instead of receiving an identity from God. Because when we don't receive vertically from God who we are as child, as children, sons and daughters of God, we'll look for it horizontally and we'll forget who God says we are and we'll start to define ourselves by what we do and who we say we are. 
play out that line enough, and that only leads to death. And so here's Jesus. He comes in and says, no, you are salt. You are light. Go to Exodus 20 with me quickly. If you don't really believe me, let's just go here. If we don't understand this, this, this thread, this theme of identity, of God telling his people who they are before they, he gives them commands of what to do, we will be confused. So it's a very familiar, if you have any background knowledge of God's word at all, you would know that Exodus 20 is where God gives them the Ten Commandments. And, and the Ten Commandments, uh, some, some people call it, uh, thou shalt not and thou shalt. Right? And some people are actually, uh, are, are, uh, push away Christianity because they deduce it down to these things and say, I just feel like it's a bunch of don't do's and do's. I feel like it's just a bunch of moral behavior issues rather than good news. And, but what we miss is, look at how God starts the, the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all of these words. I, he didn't say, you shall or you shall not to begin with. No, who does he start with? He starts with who he is. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, then he starts the Ten Commandments and says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. He goes in and he begins, though. Where does he begin? Because the relationship that God has made with his people was before any holy requirements were required. Don't miss this. He says, I am the Lord your God, and by default, you are mine. <laughs> your God. Not the God your God. Remember who I am so you know who you are. And then he keeps going. I saved you out of Egypt and by default you are saved. <laughs> I saved you out of this house and by default you are now of my house. And in light of all of this then, by, by proxy, by default of all of these things, here's how you need to live in order for it to go really well with you. Here's how you live in light of who I am and who you are. Jesus, back in Matthew 5 then, is doing the exact same thing. Because remember, to be blessed is to be otherworldly. To be blessed is to find your happiness, your peace, your joy outside of circumstances and in an entirely different world because that word blessed was only used for who? Other gods. Otherworldly in the Greek. So Jesus is saying here, this is how you live in the world in light of who you are. If these things, verses 1 through 12, are true of you, then this will be true of you. But church, what Jesus does so well as a genius, literary genius, in the Sermon on the Mount, is he forces you to go back to the very beginning to say, if I'm not this, then I'm not these. <laughs> if I'm not salt, then I must go back to the very beginning to see where I'm missing it, where I'm missing the whole of who Jesus makes me. Now, in making the statement that the disciples of Jesus are salt, Matthew 13, 5, 13, and light, he's also saying something about the nature of the world around him and around us. Hear me out. He's saying they are salt so he says, you are salt. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are salt. But by saying that they're salt, he's also saying that the what? What does the world need? Salt. 
It has a problem. It has a lack. He's saying if the disciples are light, he's saying that the world is what? Dark. And they need light. See, this is what Jesus does over and over again. Blessed are the poor. That means that you're not blessed if you're rich. And you put your hope in those things. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. So you're actually missing the whole of who you are. You're actually not blessed if all you're doing is laughing. Blessed are the meek. So if you're proud, if you put your hope in yourself, if you're not humble, you're not blessed. So Jesus continues in that, that, that uh, literary pattern of by default, you're not See, in saying they're salt, he's saying that the world is corrupt. And the primary use of salt back then was what? Preservation. They didn't have refrigeration back then. Kids, did you know that? We didn't always have cell phones, by the way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm that old now to where I remember the real thing, right? I do remember that. Only 32, but it's, cell phones are a relatively new thing. But it, what, did, what did salt do? It kept... Meat from spoiling. It kept food from spoiling. But when he says this, he is saying that the world needs salt. And likewise, when he says the disciples are light of the world, he's saying by default that the world is in darkness. And he begins by saying, here is what true of you, is true of you as my disciples, and here is what's true of the world that you find yourselves in. You are in it, but not of it. And then he goes and, and he gives very two obvious facts. Look at this. Verses 13 and 15. You are salt of the earth, but look, but if salt loses its saltiness, can't be made salty again, can it? It's no longer good for anything. Salt that is not salty is useless. And light, in verse 15, that is hidden is pointless. Neither do the people light up a lamp and put it under the bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Common sense observations. And the point of these things is Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's using these metaphors to make a point. And what's the point? The church exists for the world. The church exists. The purpose of salt is to salt something. And the purpose of light is to light up the darkness. The purpose of the church is to be a world of light. God has lit a lamp called his people, the church. And the function and the goal of his lamp, the reason why God has put the church in its place where it found itself, is that it must give light to the darkness. It must bring salt where there is none. The Hebrew scriptures are full of this language about Israel's special status. You can look at Deuteronomy 7.6. If you're a note taker, just highlight that. And, and God in Deuteronomy 7.6 tells the people, as they're about ready to enter the land, Moses, God through Moses says this, for you, Israel, are a holy people, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his special treasured possession. Clearly, Israel is God's chosen nation in the Old Testament, but this raises a number of questions that you must, if you're thinking critically and honestly, that we must be willing to press into. And again, I think you know I'm not shy of pressing into awkward, hard things. There are tensions to be held. Does God favor Israel over all the other people groups? Because Jesus in the New Testament extends his love to all nations. Does that mean that there's a contradiction between Jesus of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament? I see Hedge nodding no. 
And that's bingo, bongo, as I say. Correct. Well, why? Is, is God's love for all nations just God's plan B? Well, let's, let's look. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. You can just look there. I'll read it really quickly. You can write it down. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says this. God's word says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So these, there's this tension that must be held. Does God extend his grace and forgiveness of sins of salvation to everyone? It is his desire, yes. But does he, does, will everyone accept it? No. It's God's, it is who he is that he gives compassion to his people. It's who he is that God's name would be known above everything and every other name. Will everyone grab hold of the extension and invitation of salvation? And the answer, that we just look around at our friends and our loved ones who don't know Jesus. Tensions must be held. This isn't universalism here. Don't hear that. We, we know that all people will not be saved, but we know that from God's word, that in the case of someone who has not received Christ as their only hope for salvation, we know that the problem is not with God, but with them. God has made himself known. He's made himself available. He's pursued and pursued. The very fact, let this be evidence. If you don't know Jesus and you haven't received his salvation on your behalf, the very fact that you're here this morning is evidence that he's pursuing you. That there's an invitation to you this morning. But I find that all of these complications and these tensions uh, must be nuanced out and fleshed out and must be having conversations of, but I do want to answer one thing. What was Israel chosen for? I believe that this will lead us to a further depth of understanding. Why did God choose Israel? Okay, because look at what we're saying, that the church is salt, the church is light, that we exist to be salt to the world and light to the darkness. All right, but we must go back to Genesis 12. So turn back to Genesis 12. See, there's a, key, there's a few key moments that God gives us in his word that we see God choosing the few to bless the many. God choosing one to bless the many, the multitude. The story of Abraham is one of those stories because this family of Abraham, Abram at this time, gets changed to Abraham the families, this family will later become Israel. Does God give us then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the reason why Abraham will be blessed? And the answer is yes. Good, I'm glad you answered that. You're tracking with me. The Lord said, verse 1 of Genesis 12 to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And look at this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God chooses this one family to be the vehicle of blessing to all families. It's how he operates. It's how he works. And this theme is traced out throughout all of Scripture. As the story continues, there is a pattern. Does God repeatedly choose one for the blessing of many? The answer, 
Yes. After God rescues his people out of Egypt, he leads them to Mount Sinai to establish a covenant partnership with them. God, again, calls this chosen nation Israel. Exodus 19, briefly with me. We must see that this thread isn't a new thread of what Jesus is saying here. It's been here from the very beginning. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, look at this, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The important phrase here is kingdom of priests. What does a role of a priest do? Well, he mediates or restores a relationship between two parties. In this example, who's the two parties? The only other characters in the story at this point are Yahweh and the nations. So Israel's role is to reconcile the nations to Yahweh, their creator. It's why they were created. It's why the entire other people, the entire other nations were created. God chooses one out of the many. But how will they do this? What does it mean to be a holy nation? Israel is meant to be faithfully represent God by how they live as a community of love, justice, and worship of Yahweh alone. This is what the entire law is about. Back to what we just looked at in Exodus 20. Israel's not chosen for salvation, but for a purpose. Stay with me here. I promise you we'll, we'll thread this needle really quick. They, they have seen and experienced God, Yahweh's power and rescue for themselves. Yet God's people continually fail at their task of worshiping other lesser gods, idols as they call them. Baal. Exodus 32 is a great point if you want just a background. There's some harsh language referred to Israel's rebellion against God. And then in the middle of it all, we get to Isaiah. And we're coming up on Isaiah here soon with, with Christmas and Emmanuel and the Prince of Peace. And Isaiah comes in the middle of it all and announces what? He's coming. <laughs> the one you long for is coming. The one who will finally be a blessing to all nations. The one who will finally extend God's grace through to the nations. The one who will finally bring light to the darkness is coming, and he's coming quick. Believe that. Trust that. This Yahweh, this Messiah, will be a light to the nations. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. And what does John 1.1 announce? What does he announce to us? He's finally here. The word made flesh is here. The light in the middle of the darkness is here. He finally has come to fulfill all prophecy. And then Jesus, what does he say about himself? John 8, verse 12, that I am the light of the world. And he commissions his followers in the Great Commission. What does he say? Go and baptize, right? The nations, all peoples in whose name? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in Yahweh's name. This is so cool. So God chooses Israel, yes, but ultimately he chooses Jesus. Israel's meant to point to the coming of Jesus. Israel's meant to be a shadow of the substance of Jesus. What we see in 2D in Israel, we finally see in 3D in Christ. How awesome is that, man? So then Jesus comes in Matthew 5, verses 13 and 16. He hasn't called his disciples so that we can keep the light of the gospel to ourselves or the salt of the gospel to ourselves. He called us as his disciples so that we can exist in the world to give it salt and to give it light, not to keep it for ourselves. What good is that? 
What good is a lamp that's lit that you just put a blanket over? Does it work? No, it has no purpose. That he has called us as his disciples so that we can exist in the world to give light by reflecting his character, by proclaiming his gospel, by representing who he is in the world today. See, if we really understand what Jesus is saying back in Matthew 5 here, verses 13 through 16, then it uproots our assumption on how we view the church. It, we're forced to uproot the assumptions that we've made on how we do church, how we think about the church. Because then here, the church is not a place to go get encouraged or to go get fed or to go be a part of an institution, although it's great if you're encouraged and you're fed. We hope you get that here. But the primary purpose of this body of people of God, saved by God for the mission of God, is not to be fed and be encouraged. It's to make his name known. Amen? The goal of the church is to exist as light in a dark world. The church is a people of God set as a city on a hill. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. That, they might, that, that you give light to the world, that you bring in contact with darkness, that you're in contact, you might function as light. It's the essence of what it means to let God do through you what he's done in you. The gospel is always personal, but what good is a salt shaker just staying in its shaker? <laughs> None. The gospel is always personal, but it's never private. The gospel is always personal. It's always for you, but it's never left for you. Because if the gospel is the greatest news that you and I have ever heard, we're going to want to invite people into it, aren't we? I mean, I crossfitted for, for a long time. I crossfitted. And it's like, that's the whole rage, right? If you crossfit, everybody knows about it. Why? Because you're talking about it all the time, right? Because <laughs> it works. And if the gospel is good news, if the gospel saved us from eternal condemnation into eternal life with him, if Jesus, by his grace, by no effort or merit of our own, has saved us, won't we display that to the watching world? I mean, I'm seeing all these bucks on Instagram and Facebook right now of all the deer you guys shot. Notice I said you guys. All right, I'm not killing a buck. I love watching it, love being a part of it, love it. But, but, right, you did something. It's awesome. Everybody come look. That's what social media is built upon. How awesome you are most times. But the church then exists to say, no, we're not awesome. He is. We're a city on the hill. Meant to reflect a nature and character of who he is and what he's done. The church exists as a city on the hill. And that word city on the hill references Zion back in the Old Testament. So if you know that language, if you're a note taker, Psalm 76 verse 2, Joel 3 verse 17, Isaiah 52, 1 through 2, Micah 4, 6 through 8, Isaiah 46 verse 13, Zion, the city on a hill. It's high so everyone can see it like a lighthouse, like a beacon of light to the watching world. And now we're starting here then as we walk through to get to the fuller understanding of what Jesus is saying. He gives us these two statements of facts. You are salt and you are light. Here's who you are. And then verse 16 comes like a bomb. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Now remember, if we just have verse 16, it's all about what we do rather than who he is and who we are. It's all about your behavior, but this is driven by your identity. You are accepted. You are secure. You are significant in Christ. Now behave like this. See, it's rooted in who we are as a body of Jesus because we have a problem. Identity amnesia lets us forget, forces us to forget who we are. And so we start behaving for love rather than from love. We start behaving from or for acceptance rather than from acceptance. We start behaving to earn God's grace rather than because we have all of his grace in his son. And it's this uh, Christianity, treadmill Christianity guys familiar with that term? I've said it here before. What? Okay, you're on a treadmill. Treadmills stink for one reason. Why? You're not going anywhere. But you're working really hard. You're going, you're, you're, the faster you run, you're going, but you're not moving. You're not seeing anything. You're just staying in the same spot. And it's the same thing when we work for an identity for ourselves. It is a treadmill of work, work, work. Yet, are you going anywhere? No. And Jesus comes in and he says, no, you are, so act like this. You are salt, so act like it. You are light, so act like it. Why? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may what? See your good deeds and do what? Glorify us? No way, we want none of it. But glorify him. Our behavior flows out of our identity. Something is true of you, therefore live this way. Let your light shine. What is the source of our light then, church? Is it the light of Derek Morris? Is it the light of Nate Judd? No, it's the light of Christ. It's his light. Go back to 1 Peter 2.9 if you forgot. He's saying that let the light of Christ shine within you and then out of you to the rest of the world. Let that light shine out of you. But notice he says, let this light, the light of Christ shine so that when other people see what? Good works. Good works. When they see you living differently, when they see you loving the least of these, when they see you forgiving, when they see you serving, when they see you showing justice where there's none to be found, where they see you speaking up for those who don't have a voice in foster care and other places, that they may glorify who? Him. Your good works are the greatest hermeneutic of the gospel. Your good works are the greatest expression of the gospel. Your life lived out before the watching world is the greatest expression of who Jesus is and what he does in and through us. They, they see what comes out of you. So there's this story, really quickly, there's this story of uh, Jeff Vanderstelt in Seattle. He tells this story of uh, this coworker who worked at a pretty high-level business, and his CEO was such a good guy, such an awesome guy, and he worked there forever. And, and so he knew the boss very well. And he goes, and this, this co-worker goes to an evangelistic uh, event, gets saved, comes back to the, uh, uh, that Monday, comes back and says, you won't believe what happened. Jesus saved me this weekend. And the boss, who the guy looked up to for years, says, oh my gosh, you're a brother too? You're saved by Jesus too? And the co-worker was livid at the boss. Why? Because the co-worker went his entire life watching the CEO 
thinking he can be a good person without Jesus, thinking he can do all that this guy is doing, live the way that that guy is living without the hope and fame of Jesus in him. And so he said, you could have told me. You should have told me that because here I was thinking I could be a good person apart from Christ. Why didn't you tell me? You should have told me. And it brought him to tears. So how you live matters. How you display matters, Jesus is saying. So this is why how, how we can undo what we say we believe with what? How we live. How we work. How we play. How we post on Facebook. We can undo the display of Christ by what? Our Works. We must be willing then, church, to let Jesus ask us, are you, am I, bearing witness, reflecting the light of who he is to the watching world on, in my home, at work, on Facebook, when we laugh, love, learn, and play? Are people seeing something about who he is, not just on a Sunday morning, but every minute of every day of the Week because salt shakers and pepper shakers come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? They get some funky ones out there, don't they? Like my mom has a bunch of chickens, right? Yeah. Salt is no good though unless it's dispensed. Likewise, we are useless to Christ if our saltiness as Christians is never dispensed beyond the confines of a church building. The point of all of this is. I, if it would be great, listen to me, it would be great if there was just a sign on my head, a neon sign saying, I'm doing everything I'm doing because of Jesus, just know that, look at the sign, and then on every one of your heads too, right? It'd be great if we're just walking around with, with a Jesus is my reason, just, just know that, wouldn't it? It would be so much easier, but that's not the case. Your works, your life, your behavior is a witness to people as they're watching how you live, love, work, and play. The point of the question then is, what would they then conclude about God just by your life? What would they conclude about the light you're giving or the salt you're pouring? What would they give by your good works? What conclusion about God would they make about just watching who you are? Would it be that he's loving? Would it be that he's forgiving? Would it be that he's grace-filled? Would it be that he's tender and merciful? Or the only thing they know about God is his wrath because of your life? Or the only thing that they know about God be of his judgment because of your life? Both are needed. Both are necessary. But one comes before the other. So how do we do this? How do we work and live, love, laugh, and play in such a way that gives the glory to God and him alone. Let me give this example as I end. There are two lights that we live by in this world, church. They were put here by God to govern our existence. What are they? The sun and the moon. One has light in itself. One is a source of light. The other merely reflects that light. When you do good works to be seen by others, to have others glorify your name, you're trying to be the sun when you're supposed to be the moon. And that's not who you are meant to be. You're meant to be the moon. See, the moon, the light of the moon is glorious because the light of the sun is glorious. 
The moon gives light by receiving and reflecting the light of the sun. And this is exactly how the gospel works. In the heart of a disciple of Jesus, your good works are the receiving and reflecting of the light of the goodness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made this light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Where do we see the glory of God most clearly? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. So church, the, what do you do out of here? Part of my sermon this morning? What, give you some application to walk out of here? Behold, behold Jesus. Behold him. Look to him. Gaze upon him. Spend time with him. There was, th this morning, I showed up, at, uh, I, was, I was here early, and then I walk into the quiet room, and, and I walk in, and there's uh, this uh, young, younger girl here as part of PCC family, sitting in there with her Bible open, journaling, before any of you showed up, wanting to prepare her heart to worship her king. Behold him. Look to him. Look at the invitation he has for you this morning. So do you see him this morning? Have you known the beauty of Christ this morning? Some of you are here for this very reason, to do that, to grab hold of the beauty of Christ maybe for the first time. His extension, his invitation is here for you today to receive him, his life on your behalf. Freedom of eternal life with God, freedom from your sin, guilt, shame, on this earth to live new today. It's extended and available to you today. And some of you, like my glasses were this morning, are a little fogged over of looking into Jesus. Little glazed over. There's something stopping you from seeing the glory and beauty of Jesus like you did when you first believed. And the question we must ask is, what's stopping you? The question we must stop for a moment and just receive from God is, Lord, help me to see you more clearly in the face of Christ. I want to, I long to. Your heart is longing for this, church. Ask him to remove any glaze that exists because it's not our knowledge that changes us about God. It's knowing God through his son that changes us. It's gazing into his glory and by one degree, by one degree, we exist to be transformed into his image, into his likeness. So church, I just invite you as we end, just receive that word from God this morning. Receive from him what he wants you to do. Receive from him, whether that looks like spend more time with him in his word, spend more time with him on a walk, spend more time with him through the face of another. What does that look like? So 30 seconds, just receive from him. Open, open palms, listen, listen to what he's saying as we seek to be obedient to what he's saying and then we'll worship.